0: Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, please turn with me to the letter of 1 Corinthians. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, this Lord's Day. Now, Some of you may know this about my wife, but when she was 18 years old, she got in a rather serious car wreck. So she was on her way home. You know, from the grocery store, and as she was driving, suddenly her vehicle fishtailed on some gravel, and her back tires, as she's trying to correct her vehicle, they kind of clip the ditch as well, and as they did that, her vehicle flipped, and as her vehicle flipped, it didn't flip as we often think, like side to side, but it actually flipped from end over end, two and a half times, and then landing there in a ditch. Now, as all that was happening, you know, on the opposite side, a driver coming towards her saw all these things, and when he got to her, he said that he was certain that whoever was driving that car could not have survived that. That whoever was in that vehicle couldn't have possibly lived through that. Well, as you know, she did. (laughs) By God's grace, she made it through that. And in fact, she made it through that wreck, really, without any harm done at all, outside of the vehicle itself, of course. Now, in many ways, division within a church is like that, is like a devastating wreck. Where by the end of it all, you wonder if anyone will be left alive after all is said and done. Maybe even asking, how in the world, as you're looking at division, full-blown within a church, how could anyone come out of that alive? How could anyone survive that? Well, this morning, we come face to face with exactly that, with division within the church, and specifically division within the Church of Corinth. And that's exactly what it was. It was a wreck. <laughs> and that's not overemphasizing that's not an exaggeration. It absolutely was not good. Now, however, as bad as division is within a church, and within the Corinthian church, Paul here, in our verses, and even you could probably argue, even the entirety of the letter of 1 Corinthians, he maps the way out of that division. That by the end of it, the believers there in Corinth won't only survive, but on the other side of it, they will be less like the world and they will be more like Christ. And so to see this, let's begin here then with verse 10 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. May God bless the reading of His sure word. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is, is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or... I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now if you recall, the opening words of this letter were quite a surprise, weren't they? (laughs) You know, it would have been easy, if you remember from last week, as we began and started this letter to the Corinthians, it would have been easy for Paul to have begun the letter by just letting them have it, right? (laughs) I mean, they had sinned, and they had even sinned grievously, and they were even living in sin. And yet... He doesn't begin the letter that way, does he? If you remember from last week, he surprised us. He begins by calling them not sinners, you bunch of sinners. He doesn't begin that way. He begins by calling them saints. and He begins with thanking God for the grace that God gave them. What an incredible introduction in the midst of the mess of a church. How they at that moment, I am sure, were struggling with exactly those things. What a mess they are. And so he said all that while they were indeed all of that. They were a mess. They were living in sin and even great sin. And so he tells them there at the beginning of this letter... In so many words, Corinthians, remember who you are. Be what you are. In an unholy world, be the holy people of God. That's how the letter began. Well, now Paul is going into the body of the letter. And he certainly has many things to say. And we know that because this is a rather long letter, isn't it? Right? So he has much to say and he begins here. And so he starts the body of this letter and it begins with verse 10 here. And Paul, he makes his major appeal. So we have here Paul's major appeal. Now if you've ever had a cracked windshield of course if you're in Iraq, you might have a lot of win- like windows cracked and broken but I'm talking generally. If you've ever had a cracked windshield you know that a small crack over time or maybe even a little amount of time can so often become what? A rather bigger one, right? I mean And sometimes it can just, those fingers of the cracks can just go right on and spreading across the entirety of your windshield. Well, it could have been that what we are finding here, it began with a small crack among the Corinthians. But at this point, that's not what we're seeing. We're not seeing a small crack here. Now, the crack has indeed grown and it has expanded out and within the Corinthian congregation. And so, what, what often happens when you have a cracked windshield? Well, it can be hard to see, can't it? Well, in this case, this windshield had cracks everywhere. Not just on one level, I mean, it was on several levels. Within this church. And so it skewed their vision, even leading to the wreck that we find here, at least one angle of this wreck here in these verses. And so, what Paul is doing here is he is aiming to mend these cracks within the body of Christ. And so, this is where he appeals for the sweet balm of unity. And so he calls for them all to agree that they be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now the the word that Paul uses here, the word for division that he uses here, is one that you'll likely recognize as soon as I say it. So in the Greek, and you'll know what it is, schismata, what word is it? Schism, right? And that's the word that he uses here for, the word, for division. And so this is what that was. It was, a, it was a schism. It was division. It was cracks. It was tears within the body of Christ. And so he's appealing that there wouldn't be a rending of their unity. And this is different from what he calls them to. Being divided, he urges them to be divided rather than being divided, to be united. Now that word, it's a surgical term. It's a mending of what was broken, a repairing of what was torn. And so God, He is calling this church to mend what has been broken, to seek and to hear His word from Paul in this, this letter, inspired by the Spirit of God. And so they are, as Paul urges here, to be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now what in the world does he mean by that? Is he is he saying, you know, united in the same mind, same judgment? Is he talking about like a bunch of people who all look alike and dress alike and think alike? Is that what he's calling for? And I think... Maybe some churches see it that way, you know, and that's kind of what you see when you go into their churches. Now, if you see something like that, that's a red flag, by the way. (laughs) Something is wrong. God's not calling for uniformity. That will not heal division. It might mask division, which is so often what it does, but it won't heal division and so he's not doing that, he's not calling for uniformity, like every one of you think exactly the same. That's not what he's saying. Nor is he calling for unity around common likes or dislikes. So for example, like, hey, you like football? I do too, we're friends. You know, like, we're going to get along here. So we unite around that, you know, this, this thing that we like personally or maybe, as some churches do, what they don't like, right? And that's what they're known for in the community. Here's what they like, here's what they don't like. They're known as the church in the community that tells you what not to do. (laughs) Well, that's not it either. That's not what Paul is after. And that's not unity in the church. That's not what we need to be after at Haven Baptist Church no the fundamental basis of our unity is and must be Christ this is why he begins this way I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and there it is Now, this isn't saying that we can't like football. And I know many of you do. There's nothing wrong with that. Or maybe it's not saying that you can't like all sorts of things. But it's saying none of those things are what unites us. And it's none of those things is what is to unite us. None of those things are to be the defining thing about Christ's church. You see, we can have a people of all variety of likes and dislikes here in our congregation. And that's okay. Just hear me here. That is okay. (laughs) How many churches don't get that? It is okay for you not to be the same as the person sitting next to you. That you don't agree on every single thing. That maybe you like this and this person doesn't like that and that's okay. Because that's not what our unity is about. Nor is it what we're uniting around our common likes and dislikes. Now, do you hear me say all of this? This is not the same as saying what we believe does not matter. I'm not saying that. It's not saying that our theology does not matter. You won't hear me say that from this pulpit. What we believe in our theology, all that does matter. It matters who we say Jesus is. It matters what he did and why he did it. It matters that we believe and proclaim that he lives even right now as the living and risen King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if you get those things wrong if we get those things wrong we may not even be a church. And you may not even be a believer. It's that important. So this isn't saying theology doesn't matter. That's not what Paul is saying. It isn't saying don't think. You're not allowed to think. Sorry. (laughs) Just say yes to everything. That's not what this is saying either. Rather, we unite around the essentials and have Christ-like, gospel-centered, Bible-saturated discussion on areas that we differ. And we can differ. You know, so many confuse this. And they raise so many things to essentials that are not essentials. Like the millennium, that's not essential. Like, it's important. But it's not the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not justification by faith through Christ alone. I mean, you get those wrong and you don't know God. And so we need to distinguish these things. And where we differ, we don't go and punch each other in the face. But in love and grace, we discuss, we talk these things through. Oh, you don't, you don't see it. You don't see the millennium that way. Okay, well, I'd have a different view. But let's talk about this in love. And at the end of the day, if you don't agree on it, that's completely fine. As long as you say the essential things, Christ will return. Now, don't hear me say the millennium and all that discussion doesn't matter either. I'm not a pan-millennialist, if you know what I'm saying, where people say it all pan out in the end. I don't think that should be our view. Because God has spoken. He has given a view of these things in his word. And so we do all that with love. We do that with Christ-likeness. We don't throw aside the spirit of God and say, well, I'm going to walk in the flesh now. We say, now let's walk in the Spirit of God and talk about these things. And so we're being exhorted here, appealed to, that where, when, and if division arises, let us, you and me and all of us, unite individually and as a body around Christ. This is where healing begins. This is where what's been torn begins to be mended. It's how we survive the wreck of division or even avoid the wreck altogether. As we see all this and as we say all this, we can admit something. We can admit that unity is a hard thing. We at Haven and we as believers need to be honest. We don't need to hide from the truth. We can say it's hard. I mean, just look at your family, right? I mean, that right there, I mean, that's hard. Well, look at all of us, you know, right? And we're all different. We all have different likes and dislikes. Things that we do and think about. Unity is a hard thing. And why is that? It's because, like I just said, because we're all different. And not just that, though. Sometimes we even have differences within ourselves. (laughs) If you know what I mean. I must wage war within my own heart. So I'm not okay with me. Like, I'm struggling with myself. I don't like this guy. Or at least I don't like the sin going on in me. I'm not okay with that then I am okay with that. You know, what's going on with that? So we have this going on within ourselves, this sin that so, my own own sin that so easily entangles. So in this way, we don't look at the Corinthians and we look at them and stand above them here. Look how much better we are than you. I mean, we don't have this stuff going on in our church at Haven. Oh, that's not what we're to do. We're not to look down on them, but we're to stand right beside them and say, yeah. That's what we are. We're all a mess. Remember how the letter began. Grace. That's the only basis of any of our hope is the grace of God found in Christ Jesus. Nowhere else. It's not you. There's no boasting here. Paul will do that and talk about these things in the coming verses. All of us need Jesus that much every day and every way always. And this is why we must guard the centrality of Christ as the very basis of our unity. We aren't being abstract when we say that. We're not being impractical when we say that. We're not avoiding the issues in saying this. We are directly addressing them by taking up Paul's appeal here and magnifying the centrality of Christ. That we need him. And he is the basis of our unity. Yet as we see that, here we come next to these next verses in verses 11 through 17. And we see the point of their divisions. The point of their divisions. So in the midst of all this, the obvious question is why were they so divided in the first place? I mean, what was going on there? Well, what wasn't clear to them needs to be clear to us. You see, they lost sight Of who they were following. They lost sight of who they were following. Now we don't know much about Chloe's people here. But we know one thing. Maybe more. We know they did the right thing. They didn't hide from the truth. They didn't hide the truth from Paul that we are struggling over here, (laughs) Paul. I mean, we're looking around and this is not good we need some help here. Maybe, could you do something, like maybe write a letter to to this church? I mean, we need help. And so the people, they were quarreling or dissenting from one another, and it was not being handled well within the church at Corinth. Now, we don't know the extent of the division here over these matters, but they were aligning themselves around various leaders here. Now, as we Read that here, at least as I read that. You know, I think of those people who go to businesses and have those signs, you know. They say, I'm this and I'm this, right? You know, uh, this is what it makes me think of here. You know, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. Oh, I follow Christ, right? Now, most of these people, you know them. Right? I mean, you know Paul, we've talked a lot about him already this morning. You know Cephas or Peter. And of course we know Christ, but who was this guy, Apollos? We actually meet him in Acts chapter 18, that Jared read from a moment ago. He was an Alexandrian Jew turned follower of Christ. He was a man of great boldness, he was eloquent, and he knew the scriptures. And so all of these, Paul, Apollos, Peter, and even Christ, people were rallying around them in ways that were not good. Now, you might be looking at me oddly here, maybe you're surprised that I said all of They're rallying around all of these names in ways they ought not to? You mean Christ as well? (laughs) What? Well, yeah. Not because I'm contradicting what I just said in the first part of this sermon, or even what Paul just said, but because Paul probably isn't using any of these groups as a positive example here they were likely using Jesus' name, or saying Christ, Christos, you know, the anointed one, Messiah. And they were using that name, but not for the sake of unity, nor because he was really the basis of their appeal, but they were saying, oh, I follow Christ, you know? I mean, it's, it's still an aspect of division here. Like, oh, yeah? Well, look what we're doing, you know? So in some sense they used his name but they weren't really appealing to Christ himself. And you know we see this even today. This disjointedness of you can say I follow Christ but really, come on. Do you? <laughs> As you're dividing the church I'm only doing what Jesus called us to do. I'm standing on this. And then you just divide the church in very unchrist like ways. Well that's Something of a picture of how you could even say, I follow Christ, and yet you are not following Christ at all. You know, people saying they follow Christ, and yet their words and their actions, they say otherwise, right? And so all of this is a big problem, isn't it? And we can do this today too. We might have an unhealthy view. ...of certain people within our fold. It might be a pastor. Well, I follow this pastor. It might be a, a preacher... ...which I don't really disconnect the two... ...but it might be a writer... ...it might be a podcast host... ...a theologian... ...and on we could go, right? Well, this is where I stand. I will not go anywhere else. Right? This is who I, I'm about. This guy over here says this. He's a famous popular preacher... Well, that's who I follow. Really. And so we need to consider the words that Paul gives here. And if we're honest, and I pray we are, that we are, that we're in danger of these sort of divisions today as well. If not even going on right now. So in all this, as Paul is saying all these things, Paul, what he is aiming to do to you and for me and for all of us, he is aiming to redirect us. He makes clear that there's only one name that can save. There's only one who will get you through the wreck of division. Now, before we even get to verse 13, I think that we get the point, right? Right? All these things going on aren't right. None of those leaders are the ones that we should be following, at least Christ in the wrong way. And it can and must be that we follow only Christ. Hence, Paul then gives here a slew of rhetorical questions. And so we know that's what rhetorical questions have. They have an obvious answer. And so he gives them, is Christ divided? No, absolutely not. That's the answer. Was Paul crucified for you, obviously not. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. And all of this magnifies the point. Christ is our only hope. Amen. Salvation isn't found through Paul or you or me or a famous preacher or a profound theologian. It's Christ or nothing. Nothing. Now, right in the thick of all this, Paul, he brings up baptism. (laughs) Now, that might be odd to us, right? I mean, were you expecting him to go that direction? Oh, yeah, baptism in the midst of division. Now, why is that? Why is that odd to us that he brings that up? Well, in many ways, it might just indicate our own understanding of baptism is weaker than we think. Now, to be clear, baptism does not save. That's not the same as saying baptism is meaningless. It's mightily meaningful. We just see here, he assumes that all the members of Corinth are baptized. Baptism is that normal and expected. If you are a believer, a member of the Corinthian church, you would have had to have been baptized. Now we might come of faith to faith in Christ in a private or like we might come to faith in Christ in private or in a, within like a service like this one or even while you're talking to a friend. But your faith doesn't remain private. Even, it must not remain private. Baptism declares that you belong to Christ. He is the one that you're following. And you're part of His body, His people. That's what you're declaring when you get baptized. And we see this with Paul's emphasis on being baptized into the name of Christ. In baptism... You're aligned and you're aligning yourself with Christ. He's the one you're following. Now, why do we weaken baptism today? Well, I, I have no problem with an altar call. We do it here. But I think many people think of the altar call as baptism. It's not. You have not made your public profession of faith by coming down an altar call your public profession of faith is right there. You came to faith in Christ, not based on baptism or anything you do, and as a fruit of that faith then, you go and publicly profess, I belong to Christ. The altar call does not do that. In private, telling other people does not do that. It's that that does that. And it's baptism that then aligns you under the name of Jesus Christ and as part of the body of Christ. So in baptism, you're done that. And so baptism serves as your public profession of faith. Yet as we see that, the meaningfulness of baptism, Paul makes clear though, it's not about who baptizes you It's about Christ and the gospel. So if you think baptism saves you, Paul, he corrects all of that here in verses 14 through 17. So if you think, well, that seems mightily meaningful, I'm just going to raise it right on up to the area of like, I need to have that to be saved. He says, well, no, don't do that. It might even, here, it might even seem like he doesn't even care about baptism after having said what he just said. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now it might seem he doesn't care, but that's a far cry from what he's actually saying here. He's saying it's not about Paul. That's why he's glad he didn't baptize many of them. Only Crispus, Gaius, and those believers within the household of Stephanus. He's glad because the gospel is not about Paul. It's about Jesus. And he's glad because he wants that to be clear to everyone. I didn't baptize you and I'm thankful for that so that you would know it's about Jesus and he's the one who saves. Not me. It's not about baptism or who baptizes you. Salvation does not come through that. It comes through Christ and the work of Christ. So put simply, it's only Jesus. Jesus. It's the power of the cross of Christ. That's why he says that here. So it's not baptism. It's not the preacher. It's not eloquence in preaching like Apollos, who was eloquent, eloquent in his preaching. It's the cross of Christ and the work of Christ on our behalf. The grace of God for us. And this is the same for you also. Your hope is not found elsewhere. It's only Christ. Neither is our unity found elsewhere. It must be Christ. Amen. So as we read all this, you and me, we must be careful that we're actually following Christ. We must be careful that we're following Christ. In many ways, what Paul is doing here is is aiming to clear up their vision. He is aiming to clear up your vision. The fog of some divisive thing has clouded our vision, and so we're To consider this question. The Corinthians are to consider this question. Who are we following? He begins right there. Who are you and who are we ultimately following here at Baptist Church? We must be clear on that. I mean, you go astray here... And you're sure to find division, whether now or later. And so then the wreck ensues. And it streams down into all the varieties of the church. Into families, into the different groups. I'm for this person, I'm for that person, I'm for this way, I'm for that way. And Christ is lost in the whole process. Out of view, out of vision. And all you see are the cracks before you. And so we need to ask, are we aligning ourselves more with a preacher or a pastor? Are we aligning ourselves more with our prevailing likes or dislikes? Or are we aligning ourselves primarily and ultimately with Christ above everything else? That's the question we need to be asking ourselves. Now this, this goes beyond leaders as well. Well, What do I mean? Well, it could be that we've said, or maybe you have said this, or maybe you just feel this. This church needs me. They can't do this without me. I'm the one they need. I'm the one this church needs. I'm the one upon whom the gospel hinges in our day. If that is going on in you, if you think that is your role, like here, like you're the Savior, like you're the one everyone needs to follow, like if they don't follow you, they don't have it right. Well, that is a flag, friends. It's a red flag. And if we're not careful, we might well see ourselves as that, as the Savior that churches need. You need to know that means that your vision is skewed. It is off. If you think the church needs you like that. Now, I'm not saying you don't matter. (laughs) Don't hear me say that. Paul will address that very, well, may not very soon. But we will get to that in this letter. Every member matters when one suffer, all suffer together. Everyone has been given a gift by the Spirit of God, and every person matters within the body of Christ. And so he will get there. And that's not saying that. But all of us need to do some real work here. We need to examine our hearts this morning. And ironically, when we do that, when we begin examining ourselves, laying ourselves on the table, hands open, it leads to just what is needed. Less of us and more of Christ in his church. Which leads us back to where we started this morning. We need to apply the sweet balm of Christ regularly put off self put on Christ put off your agenda and put on Christ's and then the fog will begin to clear the broken bones will begin mending and will come out of the other side of the wreck of division with Christ before us, seeing and treasuring him above all things. We'll see the beauty of a united body, a unity centered around Christ because we're centered around the beauty of Christ himself. That's when the beauty happens here. When we don't say well you know how can you serve me but we say well how can i serve you what way can i bless you how can i outdo you in honoring you i mean how can how can we serve one another we're just aiming like to do one another in serving one another as paul talks about in romans right that is beautiful and that's not what the world's doing but that's exactly what christ has called us to do And so in all this, Paul is doing something simple. He would have us remember the power of the gospel. Not us. Not a specific, shiny leader, but the gospel. The Puritan Thomas Watson, he said it well. Christ not only prayed for peace, but bled for it. He died not only to make peace between God and man, but between man and man. Christ suffered on the cross that we might cement Christians together. He might cement Christians together with His blood as He prayed for peace, so He paid for peace. Christ was Himself bound to bring us into the bond of peace. So friends... In view of the Prince of Peace, may we see our path forward this morning to unity and not some new, trendy, new kind of thing, some new, trendy leader, pastor, preacher. I'll align myself with that person. path forward is Christ now and always so may we take hold of his appeal and unite under and around the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ may we glory in him may we treasure him may we love him may we adore him And may we unite around him. Let's pray.